My name is Dick Bransford. I I'm lived in Kenya for about 35 years. I retired about five years ago, and I went to work about a week and a half ago again. Uh, uh, I, I'd quickly say, I, I was by training, I was a general surgeon, but I don't consider myself a great general surgeon. Uh, I don't. I know I'm not a great speaker, so you're going to have to bear with me because I'm going to read and look back and forth. I had a PowerPoint that I blew it yesterday, so I don't have a PowerPoint now. But um, not a great surgeon and not great speaker. I guess if I had to look at for something great, I'd say my, my greatness grew out of something I never intended. If you'd have told me in medical school that I was going to get involved with children, I'd have said, no way. My, my perspective of kids was they couldn't talk to you and they wet on you. And so if you have that attitude towards kids, uh, it's a little bit difficult to get started. But my passion for disabled kids grew out of an insolent uh, Scottish nurse who I ran a uh, hostel for disabled kids. And my wife and I, we had twins at that time that were five years old. One, one day we drove down to this hostel for disabled kids, and she, she very kindly served us tea and shortbread, and then she talked us, to us for a little bit, and then she took us on a tour. And we went to the clinic and this place and this place and this place. And the last room she led us into was the room for the kindergarten for disabled kids. And there scattered all over the floor were crutches. And then all over the legs of these kids were these braces. Now, in case you guys don't know it, women are very clever in what they do. They walked us outside. She walked us outside and she said, uh, can you help us? Now, as a general surgeon trained in the States, let me get my tail working. Uh, I'd never seen an operation on a kid with polio. Uh, I'd much less read about it, but I was too proud to say that. And so I said, we'll try. And that was the beginning of the best adventure of my lifetime, uh, medically speaking. That was 1982. And... Uh, I developed this growing passion to get more of these kids done. And initially it was polio, and then it was club feet, and then it was cleft lips, and then it was burn contractures, and on down the road. But the last things that came into my life were kids with hydrocephalus and spina bifida. And so for the last uh, close to 10 years of my life, my concentration and focus were on kids with hydrocephalus and spina bifida. In fact, uh, 1996, uh, my focus was enough on hydrocephalus that we adopted a boy with hydrocephalus. And so just, just to, to show, show you a little bit of a success, he's not a rocket scientist, but he's in his third year of college. So uh, just be careful coming to a lecture like this. You guys are in trouble. I, I'm, I'm here not to infect you with malaria, but to infect you with a passion for these kids. Now, um, a while back, one of my friends uh, gave me a book, and it's a, a book like this on nurse, pediatric neurosurgery. And in the book was a section that says there are 45,000 new cases of hydrocephalus uh, each year in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, I was working in sub-Saharan Africa. I was working in Kenya. Uh, I read another article by the Dandy Neurosurgical Foundation saying there are 184,000 new cases of hydrocephalus in sub-Saharan Africa. And when I confronted my friend who had given me the number 45,000, he said, there may even be 300,000 kids with hydrocephalus. And I thought, well, that's, that's, that's a challenge. That's a bit of a challenge. This is in 48 countries with a total of 92 neurosurgeons. 
So let's just say the Dandy Foundation is correct. That means there's 184,000 cases of hydrocephalus, new cases every year, 52-week year, etc. cetera. Uh, and the, in those 48 countries, there's 92 neurosurgeons. So if, we, if we're going to be snooty and say only neurosurgeons can do operations for hydrocephalus, uh, that means that each one of those neurosurgeons, with whatever else they do, have to do 2,000 operations on kids with, with hydrocephalus just to keep up with the growing load. So I, I'm just saying this is that you better dream big. You better, and you better figure out where you can compromise your principles if you're a minister of health or a person in charge of the health of people in order to meet a need that is real to many parents. I have a friend that back in the 50s, his son had an operation for hydrocephalus. Uh, that was very early in the history of shunting. And uh, he used to ask people, he said, uh, and, and how many university degrees do you have? He said, my son has, I think, three university degrees. So it, it doesn't automatically say you're retarded or anything like that. Uh, reaching the deformed and disabled, uh, let me interject a thought. Reaching them has a number of implications. Medical, surgical, and spiritual. Medical, surgical, and spiritual. My, my perspective on it, and it has been for several years, is that these are a type of unreached people group. A lot of people don't look at the disabled, but the disabled uh, have some opportunities to live relatively normal lives. They're unreached medically and they're unreached spiritually. Uh, I'd I like to tell people in, 19, in 2005 we began a new ministry uh, in, in, a, in Kajabi Hospital that was aimed towards disabled kids. And we hired our chaplain, a lady named Mercy, who was about 55 years old at that time. Kenya, uh, the retirement age was 55, but we thought we'd let her sneak in under the thing. Uh, she came to me not long after she began working. She said, uh, Dick, do you think we could, could train some disciples? Now, you, you, none of us want to look stupid. But I said, uh, Mercy, what's a disciple? She says, it's somebody to follow up our new believers, and it's somebody to go into the village and talk to the new believers about Jesus Christ, and hopefully attract other people in the village. And he says, it's somebody to get patients back to our clinic, back to being seen. And I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. Now, Mercy ran it to the max. She has 500 disciples scattered all over Kenya now. And not long ago, she sent me statistics for 10 years, and they felt, and this is not an absolute, you write it down and number it, but they thought that they had about 38,000 new believers due to the work that she did. Uh, personal story, uh, October 14th this year, uh, one of my friends came to me and he said, now the, the work, one of the works I helped begin was a place called, a group called Cure. Uh, we called it Bethany Crippled Children's Foundation initially, and then Bethany Crippled Children's Center was the facility in Kenya. It was aimed mostly toward orthopedic disabilities. Uh, a little bit later, we started a group called Bethany Kids, which uh, is pediatric surgery but is largely neurosurgical oriented. Well, Bethany Kids uh, lost its neurosurgeon, and... Uh, one of my friends said that, and I said, well, Jim, I said, you, you know, you, you have to make a big choice at this time. 
Are you prepared to close down the program? It's a time, if you're, if you're thinking about it, and it's really, really hard. Any neurosurgeons here? Uh, that's what I thought. I'm sorry. I'm a pessimist in that room. Uh, you've got to go out and find yourself a neurosurgeon if you want to continue the program like it is. And, uh, or you, you either have to do that or close the program down. And I said, be careful what you say at times. And I said, if I can help you in any way, let me know. I am not a neurosurgeon. Now, I, I've put in a lot of shunts, and I've closed the back of a lot of kids with spina bifida, but I'm not a neurosurgeon. Three days later, I get the call saying, um, we have a problem. We've gone to the Ministry of Health, and we said we need to close down our program and refer the kids with hydrocephalus and spina bifida to the main teaching hospital in the country. And we went in, and we saw there was a Christian pediatrician told her this, and she said something to the effect of, you can't do that. She said... Uh, we have 1,400 kids on our waiting list, and uh, you just can't do this. And so uh, that was the 17th of October. On the 20th of October, I have tickets to go to Kenya. And uh, on the 26th, I left and went via a North African country down there and uh, came back last Thursday, day before yesterday. Day, yesterday? day before yesterday. And... Uh, there, there is just such a vast number of these kids. And all you have to do is walk over and pull back their little blanket and look at them. And you realize that maybe you better inconvenience yourself a little bit and take care of these kids. Uh, I'm getting a little old, but I love those kids. I love taking care of them. I have a little one in the hospital at Kajabi right now named Natalia. Natalia is four months old. She has spina bifida. She... She has a shunt in, and uh, I just kind of like to go over and peek in and look at her. Because, uh, and I think of what a, what a hard road she has. Uh, reaching all the disabled is, is a mind-boggling thing. It's an impossible task, humanly speaking. With our current methods, with our current expectations of training, it's an overwhelming, at least for several decades, Somehow, many in medicine, many in the leadership of medicine, many in the ministries of health, many in the capital cities think Western. Only a neurosurgeon, only a pediatric surgeon, only a uh, pediatric orthopedist should be doing these things. And uh, they don't live in the real world out there where people don't have the money to do what they are. Most of the kids with hydrocephalus and spina bifida for a long time, not, not necessarily today. They had gone to their local clinic. They had gone to their district hospital. They had gone to the provincial hospital. And some had even gone into the capital city to the main teaching hospital and got added to that 1,400 waiting list. 1,400 waiting list, six months minimal de delay. Do you know what that does to a brain that already has pressure pushing on it? Uh, it's a hard thing. Um, the leadership oftentimes were trained in the West. Uh, they oftentimes uh, think that if, if, you know, yes, they're a, a developing country. If you're derogatory, sometimes, yes, they're a third world country. But living in the capital, you don't want to admit that you're a third world country. Uh, they can't fathom fathom the shrinking the image of medical care to include something less than a specialist or maybe something less than a doctor. Uh, let's digress for a moment. Uh, 
there were murmurings in many corners of Africa, if not the developing world, about what they call task sharing. Uh, task sharing and surgery that involves abbreviated training and a limited breadth of responsibility for very, varying cadres of medical workers that some physician level, but also those who are not physicians. Could we take a guy that's worked in the operating room who's sewn up wounds? Uh, could we take a, a person that's done 10 C-sections or 100 C-sections and train them to do, put in a shunt, to fix a club foot, close the back of selected patients with, hydros with spina bifida, uh, to fix some club feet. Uh, I happen to think we can. I happen to think we can. Uh, task sharing is a real reality in many countries. Um, if you go to Tanzania, uh, I was told a few years ago that uh, they had 50 general surgeons for 100 hospitals. If you go to Mozambique, the people that are the day-to-day -day grinding out the surgery outside the capital city are not physicians at all. And they're doing about 80% of the, the surgical work. Now, some of my friends, I don't see any of them here. I do have friends, but I, I don't see any of them here. Uh, I feel that this is, is really a radical perspective to think that somebody less than a physician can be trained to do things. Um, it's different. Uh, the estimated world population is 7.4 million billion people. Uh, we usually think that 3 to 10 percent of the, of the population of the world has some disability. Uh, if we just selected on a conservative figure of 5 percent uh, had some disability, that means that in our world today there's only 370 million people with disability. Um, I lived and worked in Kenya for 34 years. Kenya is the size of the state of Texas, has a population of the state of California. And people used to come and say, uh, why do you have so many disabled kids here? And I said, just say, well, if we only had one center in California and all the disabled came to that center, uh, you can understand a little bit more. Uh, if you knew that folic acid is not given to very many of our, our mothers, and therefore, that promotes a higher incidence of spina bifida, uh, then you can understand a little bit of why we see so many. And if you admit the fact that pregnancies in the United States are often followed with ultrasounds, and that many of those with spina bifida are getting abortions, then you understand why we don't see so many. And so, uh, there's still a Judeo-Christian mentality in many of the people, at least in Kenya, I mean, it is more common to go to church than not to go to church. But uh, that Judeo-Christian mentality means that many of the moms who are sometimes abandoned, sometimes single moms, desperate moms, all of them, come to you with their child who can't move his legs, uh, and you say to them, this is what you can expect. Uh, your child will probably, we can't tell for sure, but probably never control her urine or stool and never be able to walk. Uh, we'd, we'd like to follow what you feel is best for your family situation. What would you like us to do? Nearly all of them will say, let's go for it. And I, for, for all the time I was in Kenya, we used to say to people, uh, uh, we don't want you to make this decision on the basis of money. If, if, if it all can, can we'll, we'll do it. And if you can help us later, that's fine. 
And I've had pe- women come back and they, I, in the clinic and I would examine their child and I'd say, uh, you need to come back in six months. Here's an appointment slip. And have them look at me and say, I need my chart. I said, no, you've got your appointment slip. He says, no, I want to pay part of my bill. And they, want to, they walk over and they may pay 50 cents or something like that. But, you know, for a long time I, I was very discouraging when it came to spina bifida. And I'd practically talk him into taking the child home, letting him die. And I decided, after just a little bit, I don't want to play God. I mean, if I'm, I, I, I could never, in the faith mission we were working with, I could never ask people for money. I mean, that was part of our rules. But I could get down and beg for my kids if they needed, needed care. Um, in 2010... Uh, President Mwamba Kabaki, then the president of Kenya, came to open our new operating rooms. And they wanted to show him a few patients. So it so happened that he didn't walk up and down stairs very well. So he came to the pediatric ward. And um, we, we knew he was coming. We knew he was coming. So we took this one eight-bed ward. We thought we're going to get him through that eight-bed ward at least. And we put all our, a lot of disabled there. We usually had about 30 or 40 disabled kids. But we put eight in there. And as he came in, we took him around and introduced him to each of these eight children and told him what was wrong and what the plan was. And about the sixth bed, I said, you know, there's no facility of this type between Cairo, Egypt, up there, and Cape Town, South Africa. And he didn't say anything. And when he walked out the door and walked down a little bit, he said to our executive director of the hospital, he said, is that really true? And I think it really is true. There's other small hospitals for dis- disabled, but there's nothing set aside. Maybe somebody was going to say that's the, the, because no other country can afford it. I don't know. Let me go on to try and describe the situation in the developing world. My involvement has been mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, where there are nearly one billion people. Nearly one billion, not totally. If three to ten percent are disabled, as I mentioned before, uh, we can consider amongst one billion people, there's 50 million disabled. That's quite an OR list. No. Uh, some estimate that 15 to 20 percent of those need surgical care to improve their quality of life. Um, this gets us down to only seven and a half to ten million. Uh, I don't ex- actually know what all the definition of disabled is. Club feet, cleft lips, uh, spina bifida, hydrocephalus, uh, gastroschisis, uh, abdominal malformations, hypospadias, and so on. And that the so on is a, a, an extending thing. Uh, I can see that easily there's a few million disabled people that need care. And there's nearly no one taking care of it. Um, that quantity of people is an overwhelming consideration, especially if you consider the staffing in Africa, the materials in Africa, the economics in Africa. Uh, I'll probably mention this again later, but Tanzania, just south of us, has, I think, about 45 million people. It has one neurosurgeon for every 10 million people. Uh, they can't, can't keep up with the load. Uh, they, they have said that in order to get the comparable specialist to the West, it will only take them 234 years. So that, I, what I'm trying to do is paint you a picture of, of disability and the care of disability in Africa. I come back and I sarcastically said, say, uh, let's not look at state of the art. Let's look at state of the need. 
And I'm not sure that word is used elsewhere, but I'm, I'm going to give you that one. At least, excuse me. Uh, but uh, uh, there, there's a huge need. And need doesn't necessarily mean you're supposed to do it. But it could be a little bit of the formula of getting you there and having you find the, the will of God. Uh, in Kenya, one would often find an auto mechanic and you could walk into the auto mechanic with your car and particularly if you were African, and they'd say, uh, I'd like my car fixed. And they'd say, uh, do you want regular or do you want Juakali? And Juakali translates in Swahili as fierce son. But what that really means is, do you want us just, you don't have much money, do you want us to fix it as cheaply as we can? And uh, many people would say that, yes, fix it as cheaply as you can. Well, the, the translation of that is in... Other terms is if you're in the northern part of Kenya and your radiator springs a leak, you know, here you just drive into an auto mechanic place and they give you a bottle and you pour it in there. In northern, northern Kenya, uh, if you have a little oatmeal in your car, you can put that in and that will stop the leaks. The other thing that some of the real fundis, the real experts say, put a little camel dung in your car. Uh, now, not many of us have camel dung laying around, but that, that's supposed to work. And if your radiator or your uh, fan belt breaks, they say, if you don't have another fan belt, use a pair of pantyhose. <laughs> now, I've never had to do that, but that's, that was the explanation. In, in the speaking about disabled kids, sometimes you need a little oatmeal or camel dung to meet the needs that you're going to be seeing. Uh, I'm a, a surgeon, uh, but maybe my doing my best is not good enough. Uh, is state-of-the-art necessarily best for the circumstances and best for who? Maybe we should consider our Western standards. It normally takes seven years to train a neurosurgeon. Now, having spent the last close ten years of my life working on, with kids with hydrocephalus and spina bifida, uh, neurosurgery became much more intimate to me. I don't break out brain tumors. I don't do the fancy stuff. Uh, if I can just put a shunt in and close the back of kids and help the kids get rehabilitated to the extent they can, that's great for me. Uh, but it's, it takes seven years to train a neurosurgeon and lots of shillings, lots of dollars to train a neurosurgeon. And most countries just can't do that. And as I already said, Tanzania says it would be 234 years till they have one neurosurgeon per 100,000 people, which is what the World Health Organization recommends. One might realistically question whether you really need a neurosurgeon to put in a shunt. Now, how many of you, do you, you all know what a shunt is? Okay. I, so we'll, we'll just assume you don't know what the shunt is. Your neighbor knows. You can ask her. She, she shook her head up and down. Uh, it's a tube that goes between the ventricles of the brain and the abdomen with a one-way valve in the middle. And so you can pump that valve, and it only pushes the fluid down here. goes in the abdomen, it's absorbed by the peritoneum, and it's eliminated by the kidneys. And uh, what it's meant to do is to take the chambers of the brain that are getting more and more fluid pushing out more and more, damaging the brain more and more, and to give it an, an artificial way out. Uh, of four cases with the hydrocephalus in Africa, three of them are due to meningitis that has scarred up the absorptive surface. 
and one of them is due to a congenital blockage that doesn't let it get out. That's simplistically said. Don't go telling experts that, but that's approximately what happens. And so putting in a shunt, if you can do good sterile technique and all, is a fairly simple complica- uh, operation. And uh, we had in 1984... Uh, we had a radio call from northern Kenya, and the, the nurses said, I have a ch- we have a child with hydrocephalus, and the neurosurgeon in the main government hospital isn't there right now. Can you put in a shunt for us? So I said, uh, I better go talk with the other surgeon because I've never seen one put in. And I went and talked to the other surgeon, and I said, uh, Bob, have you ever put on a shunt? He said, no, I've never even seen one. So I went back, and I said, we can't put in a shunt. We don't never even know what it looks like. And about that time, this is long before, long before email. You guys can't imagine that, but it's long before email. Uh, uh, I get this letter with a stamp on it, in case you're wondering. And uh, I open this letter, and it says, I am a Chinese neurosurgeon working in Los Angeles. I'm coming to Africa. Uh, I'm going on safari. Uh, could I have a tour of your hospital? That sounds fine. So I get on my phone. At that time, the phone, you have to crank it and go through two or three operators. And I call my brother in Los Angeles area. I say, Jack, um, could you call this guy? Here's his name. And I don't think I could pronounce his name. And uh, he said, uh, and tell him, we'd love to give him a tour. How do you like to put in a shunt? And then I said, also, could you tell him, we don't have any shunts. Could he bring a shunt with him? <laughs> and so he came out and he put in one shunt. That's 1984. And we never saw another expert for 16 years. And we started putting in shunts. 1997, we put in seven shunts. That was, a, that was the first, what we call, big year. 2011, we put in 930 shunt procedures. 1997, we had nine spina bifidas, nine defects of the neurological part of the back. Uh, in 2011, we had about 400 spina bifidas. Uh, that was what was happening to us. Uh, I put in a lot of shunts by now. How long would it really take to train a medical person with some surgical skills to insert a shunt with other things? What about club feet and burn contractures and cleft lips and a few things like that? Do those working with the disabled need to consider a different type of task sharing that is different from what they're doing for general surgery? Do we need to reconsider cure versus, versus improve? Uh, at Kajabi, where we live for 35 years, right up the hill is a place called Rift Valley Academy. It's uh, one of the bigger missionary academies in the school. So every year, you know, the kids that get older, 11th, 12th grade, we always took them on a tour so that they could, this was the part of the medical experience. Would you like to be a nurse or a doctor or what have you? And uh, I always take them in and show them my kids with spina bifida. And I say, now, if you break your arm or you get pneumonia, chances are you'll get well. My kids never get well. They'll always or nearly always have a shunt or they'll nearly always have to do clean intermittent catheterization, bowel washout. They'll nearly always, not all of them, but nearly all be using a wheelchair. And that's the type of climate you're in. Um, That doctor who came didn't know what a great answer to prayer he was and how a great obsession he could generate by doing this. For a few years, we, I begged friends. I, I have friends, surgeons, and I would say, could you bring a few shunts? I got to where I could maneuver the system. And, and they'd bring out shunts. 
Then I finally got grown enough that, you know, one, t- one time we had a, a radio therapist out of Wichita, and he used to send out these boxes about two times a year, and it was stuff that the hospital was discarding. The bottom one of those boxes was seven shunts, and that, would, that, would, that held us over. And then finally, I uh, got a, this throwaway journal on disability, and uh, in the article was an article by that group called International Federation of Spina Bifida and Hydrocephalus. And I wrote the address, and I said, can you tell me where I can buy? probably said cheap, but I should have said inexpensive shunts. And uh, I, I wrote him, and I, the guy wrote me back about two, three weeks later, and he says, why don't you tell us what we do, what you do? And I said, well, you know, this is, we're putting in shunts for kids with hydrocephalus. He said, how about us just giving them to you? And that was pretty easy at that time. We probably needed about 20 cents a year. Now you need about 600, 700 a year. Uh, and we have a great marriage with that group. It's out of Belgium. Uh, do we also need to reconsider the cure versus improve? It's not bad. You know, disabilities, you don't like to see disabled kids. But in so many ways, can you help them live a normal or more normal life? Uh, I go to a place called Joytown, and uh, Joytown has, in the primary school, has about 330 disabled kids. In the high school, they have about another 120. They're all in adjacent campuses. And uh, when I first started, it was mostly kids with polio. And I used to say to uh, some of these kids with polio, I said, you know, you may have a, a crippled leg, but you don't have a crippled mind. You could be a teacher or a variety of other things. And I said... Uh, now, then I had asked him a question, and we'll ask you that question. Do you know what president of the United States served the longest? Quickly, come on, historians. Huh? FDR. Do you know what was wrong with FDR? Well, they think he might have had polio. He may have had something else. So I would turn to them and I'd say, you may not be the best soccer player. And, you know, you could be a teacher, though. Or maybe you could be the president of Kenya. And we look at each other and smile. And uh, it, was, it was kind of fun because, you know, they, kids with disabilities have opportunities. And kids with disabilities have something to contribute in life. So though my kids will, may never get well, they might be the president of Kenya. Uh, easier to embrace a task that we can control. Now, I see a, there's a few of us that are a little older, but not, not many younger people. Uh, don't forget to dream. Don't forget that there are innovations God may have to come out of your life. Don't forget to think outside the box. Um, lost my place in my reading. That's why I said I'm not a very good speaker, but I have to find my place. While it's easier to embrace a task we can control, there are God-sized tasks requiring innovative approaches that are really beyond our abilities. Now, who did Jesus entrust his work to? Qualifications, disciples? Give me one. John, what was he? A fisherman. Uh, Matthew? Tax collector? You know, in many ways, what a motley group of people to entrust his work to. Three years together and he sends them off to change the world, to be his representative. And most of them to die. I mean, willing to die. Uh, Most likely they had minimal education, but they were the ones to whom he entrusted his work. 
If we avoid seriously confronting the -the out-of-the-box task, we may remain relatively comfortable, relatively comfortable. God-sized tasks likely involve something bigger than an individual, and they may best be done merging the vision and skill sets of a number of people. So think outside the box. That was my meeting this morning. For those of you who weren't there, uh, we began our meeting at 6.30 in the morning. This is for the really tough people. And uh, we were talking how to think outside the box. How can we do something for the developing world and creating a training program that would meet the needs of more and more disabled kids? And I'm excited about it. I've been excited about it for 10 years, but I haven't got it off the ground. But I haven't given up. I'm old enough now that I, you know, there's a little quote down here that says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your your old men, and I get to qualify in there, will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. My, My activity now is take my old men dreams and put it into a reality. Um... I remain convinced that there are alternatives in medical care needed for many parts of the developing world, at least for the next 50 to 100 years. I don't think we'll have, I don't think we'll have appropriate specialist for at least 100 years to meet the needs of what's out there. While those alternatives are probably unsuitable for the developed world, they may temp- be a temporizing solution for multitudes of people. And, you know, just to throw in a little parenthesis, who knows how many people we could see come into the kingdom through this. I mean, it's really exciting. I loved about October, November, I'd say to Mercy, uh, can you tell me about how many people have come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in this year? And and Mercy's a, a mother and grandmother. Her profound method of evangelism is she walks down and sits on the bed with a mom who has a kid and tells him about Jesus. And so she'd give me a list of names and I'd put five names in red and five names in green and five names in red. And I'd type this thing out and I'd send it out to my friends on, on email this time. We're past the And uh, one of them said, well, I printed out this whole list of names and hung it across my living room. The kingdom. I mean, I don't know, you probably have some medical interest if you're in this group, if you're at this conference. And we have the keys to the kingdom in many ways. I mean, we, we have the keys of attracting people, opening doors. I'll tell you a little bit about an open door in a few minutes. I'd like to tell a story, Genesis 18, Abraham. Abraham and his wife are enjoying a comfortable afternoon. And these three strangers come walking up, and Abraham goes out and bows down before them. He runs and tells his wife, fix a good dinner. And uh, they stand there and talk for a little bit, and the chief angel or God or whoever it was says, uh, a year from now you're going to have a baby. And Sarai, who uh, was not supposed to be listening, is sitting back there giggling. And she says she laughed. Maybe she giggled. I don't know whether she did or not. And... Uh, he said, no, really, you're going to have a baby in a year. And then he tells him about Sodom. He said, uh, we've heard bad things about Sodom. We're going down and probably going to destroy it. And he says, you're not going to destroy it if there's 50 righteous people. No, I won't do it. 45, 30, 20, 
Ten? No, we won't destroy it if there's ten righteous people. And that's pretty exciting. Because he intervened. It was a town of probably several hundred, if not a few thousand. And Abraham intervened for them. And I intervened for my disabled kids. How many disabled kids would I have to see come into the kingdom? How many people would I have to see uh, just to make the whole life worthwhile? I don't know. I, I, I got to thinking. Could I come back like Abraham and say, ten? Yeah. If I could multiply myself ten times, it'd probably be worth it. Think outside the boss. Ask God for a special touch in those dreams and visions. Uh, 2006, uh, another general surgeon and myself and a pediatric anesthesiologist flew up to a country we should never have been in. And uh, we'd been told before we went that this was a, there were no known Christians in the entire country. Uh, we did it kind of covertly, CIA type stuff. No, it wasn't. And uh, we, we landed in a place on the way up that we should never have landed in. And we wound up in this country. We got in this bus, and we had all our stuff on top of the bus. And finally, the bus driver came back and said, you can't be in this bus. I said, why can't we be in this bus? He said, you're supposed to have an armed guard. I said, yeah. So after a, a fair amount of arguing, he said, now, if, we, if we go down this road and we get stopped at a police station, you've got to put your coat up over your head. And uh, so we went all the way to the capital. And uh, the next day, they took us down to the only medical school in the country. And uh, we got out and... I was going to go to the pediatric ward and look for disabled kids. I was already obsessed by that. And uh, uh, we go to the pediatric ward, and not uh, really with a doubt that we're going to have any patients. And uh, walked into this ward, about the size of this room, maybe a little bit bigger, wall-to-wall people, moms, babies, and all. And here we come in covertly. And so I said, these two young lady uh, medical students came up and said, can we help you? And one of the questions we asked him, I said, where did all these people come from? He said, oh, we advertised you on BBC. So our covert CIA-type stuff didn't work so well. But that was... Uh, and the next day, I was in the operating room operating, and uh, this young lady came up behind me, a medical student. She says, I've never met a Christian. Now, you better let that ring a bell in your life the rest of your life if you ever get in a situation like that. Ten years, I can't forget that. I've gone back about five times a year. And uh, one of those young ladies is now a wife and a mother. And she comes back and operates with me. And another one of the young ladies that was a class behind her comes and works with us. I've trained them to do the shunts, the club feet. Uh, good reasoning, good, good things. And uh, I'm very proud of those ladies. One of them is like a daughter to me. They both are Muslim. They both, uh, uh, I pray for them. We pray over the patients. I tell people I'm trying to learn to pray theology. I'm trying to, because I'm with these people, I want to give them a view of the whole scripture. But it's going to take, it's only taken 10 years so far, but we're, we're getting there. And if I come up and we get ready to start an operation, and one of them sees we forget to pray. She turns, aren't you going to pray? It's a double entry. Uh, we later found that uh, we were the only people coming to this region. There were no plastic surgeons. There were no pediatric orthopedists, or at least ones working with disabled kids. 
there were no neurosurgeon. We found that we not only were responsible for that country in a manner of speaking, but for four regions around it. Uh, we're the only people working with disabled kids for 15 to 20 million people. And it's a, it's, it's an, it's a burden and it's a privilege because God has allowed us to do that. Um, I went with a general surgeon and anesthesiologist that first time. We've continued to go back. I was with, had, breakfast, had lunch with, pardon me, supper with one of them last Monday. And he's building an anesthesia program for Africa that's much better than ever before. Now, I better ask you, what time are we supposed to stop? Okay, you're going to let me know. If she comes up and hits me, you'll, te- you'll defend me, won't you? Um, anyhow, we've been told there were no known Christians in this. Uh, we've continued to go there. I go there about five times a year. I retired five years ago. Uh, I continued to go for the five years. I re-entered work uh, about a week and a half ago. And uh, uh, when they said there's 1,400 in the waiting list, I, I re-enlisted for a while. And uh, anyhow, that's it. Uh, let's go back to task sharing. In the realm of the disabled, Western thought for the care of disabled would include a pediatric neurosurgeon, a plastic surgeon, a pediatric orthopedist, a pediatric urologist, and possibly a few others. We don't even have those t- people that merge all those skills in this country. But, you know, what can we do? What can we do? And it would be a long time before these are available for Africa. Um, one of the, I'm just going to kind of wind up a little bit early and let you ask questions. Uh, my, my verse for the last 20 or 30 years is, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up the mountain and sat down. And great crowds, or multitudes, maybe 15, 20 million, I don't know, uh, came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And he put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled uh, healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing. What's the next part? This is Matthew 15, 29, 31. Now, don't pick up your phone. You can't look at the verses. What's the last little sentence? Oh, come on, you guys. Somebody must know. What, what should have been the conclusion then? And they praised the God of Israel. And they praised the God of Israel. So our role is to take the skills God has given us and use them in the best way. And let me just say that I'm, I'm tired of, of waiting in some ways. And I, I tell him this regularly. I serve a God of miracles. He parted the Red Sea. He made the axe head float. I want him to do some of those things for me. Now, I'm, don't get me. I'm not a radical. But I want him to do some. I want him to get Decca and Shukri to dream dreams and see visions. I want them to see the living Jesus Christ walk to them because that's the type of God we serve. Uh, There are multitudes of disabled out there awaiting help and many also await personal relationship with Jesus Christ. May God give us wisdom. Now I'm going to just ask you, do you have questions?
Wow, this is the quietest group I've ever seen. Uh, ran out of my leash. Uh, I don't see leprosy very much. Um, I did when I was in Congo. Uh, I spent about a year and a half in a place called the Comoro Islands. On the island of Anjouan, I corresponded with the leprosy mission in London, I think. I think London or the U.S. They said the incidence of leprosy on Anjouan may be the highest of any place in the world from what little sketchy information I gave them. Now, medication should give them a, uh, should keep them from infecting others, should stop some of the advances, but will probably not affect the, the residuals. Dave, nerves are dead. If you haven't read it, read a book called Ten Fingers for God about Paul Brand. Wonderful book. Paul Brand. He's dead now, but he was a British general surgeon and helped uh, begin the teaching program in medical school in India. And uh, is a great person, but he writes about leprosy and his discoveries there. I'm sure they do. Uh, the other thing Paul Brand used to do, uh, he'd, he'd bring him in for a little education course, and you know what he'd send him home with? A cat. That was to catch the rats to keep them from eating off the tips of their fingers. Ooh, yeah, yeah. So. Yes, sir. There's one at Kajabi, but you probably don't need it very often, except for the older kids whose fontanelle are closed. Yeah. Learn, learn to do it the cheapest way possible. And if they've got an open fontanelle, that gives you a number of things. One is you can do an ultrasound, which is remarkably cheaper than a CT. The other thing you can do is put a needle in and take fluid off the ventricles to know what type of infection or if you have an infection. Do you know if there's anybody in Africa that does the third ventriculostomy? Yes. Uh, there's a place at Mbali that teaches it. There was a guy named Ben Worf who's now at Harvard who was the pioneer at, in that part of Africa. They take people through that course regularly who are primarily neurosurgeons but also some other surgeons. Uh, I don't, it's about a month they keep people there. Uh, Dr. Leland Albright, who was at our institution at Kajabi, did some. You have to do not just the third ventriculostomy, but the choroid plexus cauterization. I do not do that. I'm a general surgeon. And the first time, I think Ben Worf told me, he says, now, if you make the hole here, they bleed to death. If you make the hole here, they bleed too much. So... I, I decided that I wasn't smart enough to do that. But it does seem like the most sustainable approach to, IDIS, to that type of IDIS. Yes, I, I, it's, it's, and it keeps a foreign body out. On the other hand, they do block up. I just I, I put a shunt in last week and one that had one that worked about two and a half years, and that's unusual to stop at that time. Can do that. Uh, I was at Prescription for Renewal, which was run by Samaritan's Purse. been about eight or nine years ago. Uh, Franklin Graham was there, and he walked this older gentleman up to the platform to greet us. 
uh, Billy Graham, mm-hmm. and who, uh, who had just come back from having a shunt put in. So, you know, there's no age limit. I, in fact, last time I was in the North African country, we put one in an 18 and a 22-year-old. So that's not real old, at least for most of us, but it's, uh, it's older. Their skull's thicker. You better have a good drill or something else. Most of the time, you just take a knife and make a little hole. Yes, sir. Good morning. Um, question. Say, like, one of us aspiring physicians or whatever wants to come over and learn how to put in, you know, a shot to close and find it or whatever. How long would that take if we didn't have, like, a lot of... What were your skill sets to begin with? Uh, brand new, brand new, year one level. In? In? Neurosurgery. No. <laughs> Let's just say, like, uh, primary um, my feeling is I could, you know, this, I have good, good friends that argue with me who have more training than I do. I think in nine to 12 months, you could teach somebody to put it in a shunt, fix a club foot, do some burn contractures, rotate flaps, uh, do full thickness, partial thickness skin grafts, uh, do Achilles tenotomies, do most of the basic. My, my theory is that you could train them to do 80% of the needed surgical work. Let me, let me pass this around. If you could stick your sticker on there. I've got a few stickers left. I usually take them home uh, unexpectedly because I forget to use them. I will try and send you some follow-up. Okay. You'll wind up on my prayer list. Uh, that's, that's okay. If you don't want to be on a prayer list, just don't put your sticker on there. Yes, sir. Not where we were. Kajabi is about an hour north of Nairobi. And the, the one, one thing about it is that disabled kids don't have much money. And so you're not competing. If I were in the capital city, I would probably be in trouble. Uh, as I say, you know, we were, we were putting in uh, eight, nine hundred shunts or shunt-type procedures in 2011. I'm just, I've just come back. I mean, literally, I've spent a week at Kajabi in the last five years, and I go back next Thursday. So, Yes? Ten minutes. Okay. A ten-minute question. Um, what is the role of, like, therapist post-op for some of these uh, um, disabilities? Is, is extremely any... important. Um, uh, particularly, you know, let, let me say for club feet, for bracing and walking, but for those that with spina bifida, many of them are wheelchair bound. And some of them uh, can walk, but they need uh, special artificial legs or things like that. Um, Joytown, which is about two hours from Kajabi, is that special school for disabled kids. Uh, we have about three or four therapists, one of them an occupational therapist working there. Uh, the, we've, we've gone from uh, nearly three or four kids with spina bifida to 60 kids with spina bifida. And we kind of have a little political feeling in that. Uh, tremendous. Teach, we have the lady who's kind of our chaplain there uh, has spina bifida. And uh, Francisca, if you, if you want to look, look under Bethany Kids Francisca, and it's a great testimony. Uh, she has a below-the-knee amputation. Uh, she came and saw us first when she was 18. But uh, she walks. She's married. She has a little boy. Uh, as far as we know, she's the first person with spina bifida that's ever had a child. But that's, that may be very wrong. I don't know that. She's a little like a daughter to me. And she's special. Uh, i got to thank him first. Okay? Yes? Are the PACS uh, surgical residents trained at all to 
they, they would not want to be known, but Jim Brown in uh, uh, Cameroons is doing more and more uh, hydrocephalic shunting. I just talked to Jim a couple of weeks ago, and he's... It's taken a lot of twisting of Jim Brown's arm. I've known Jim since he was a medical student, came out and lived with us, or lived in Kajabi. Really? And uh, uh, it's, it, it's special. Uh, he, he's a little embarrassed. PAX does not want to get that as an p- academic part of their stream. God bless them. I mean, they have enough to do. But uh, we're trying, to, we're beating on their heads periodically. <laughs> and, yes, sir. They're, they're working on it. There's a guy named Pierre Mertens that works with International Federation in Belgium. Uh, Pierre's best qualification, he's an artistic painter, painter sculptor, and does some counseling of people. Uh, he's a great friend and uh, uh, wrote a book, uh, not translated well, but talks about his, his very best qualifications. He had a daughter with spina bifida and whom it's a desperate book. She lives to 12 and finally dies and shouldn't have died of what she died of. Yes? Can you talk a little bit, um, not so much on the side of like um, correcting these problems medically, because um, personally I'm going to be a nurse and so I won't be doing any surgeries, but I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit on like just walking beside uh, disabled people like medically and also spiritually and just supporting them. Ooh, that, that, that's that's a, a beautiful topic. I mean, uh, our nurses were, were the... When Agnes Geruto came to join us, Agnes had one year out of nursing school. And I, I, I tell people, Agnes was so much like me. She was stubborn. And uh, she came, she did all her regular work shifts, and uh, Jenny Nelson and Kim Augustine taught her how to do bladder evaluations, and how to do uh, uh, intermittent catheterization. And so she would go and train the mothers. And uh, Agnes traveled to Uganda and Malawi and uh, Tanzania and actually took one exhibit to Canada. Uh, But without Agnes, honestly, it would be like having my left leg cut off. That's my right leg, but the left leg. (laughs) Uh, But uh, she she continues to be a, a really important person. Our mobile clinics are run by nurses. I mean, there's, I think, three nurses. And they go out probably three days every week. And uh, so they go to where the patients are. And one of the things we started was we said, if uh, uh, with looking at the map, the, the mothers have already been to the local clinic. And I think I said this before, local clinic, the district hospital, and so on. And told there's nothing to do. So we decided the best way to, to care for these people because of the money that they didn't have was to take our clinics close to them. We don't own any of the 15 or 16 clinics. We just go there and work with other people. Yes, uh, nursing is vitally important. Uh, but we could teach you to operate too. Oh, pardon me. <laughs> uh, yes, ma'am. Or the doing shots, 
Word of mouth mostly. Word of mouth. The satisfied mothers who found a solution and they take it back to the village. The other thing we did later on, not quite at the beginning, was we began making radio uh, announcements in the vernacular, in the local language, not, not English, not Swahili, so that people could have the knowledge and when the event came along, they could bring them into that. Now, in case you ever wonder... I didn't get into this. I told you I didn't like kids wetting on me and couldn't talk to me. But I didn't get into this because I wanted to. But I think God knew what my heart needed. Now, we have five natural kids, all of them healthy. We have two adopted African boys, one of them with a shunt for hydrocephalus. You want to have something drive your life, get you a child with hydrocephalus. And he's now in his third year of college. My son, uh, Rick, who is an uh, orthopedic surgeon, a spine surgeon in Seattle, called my wife the other day. Millie said, uh, they're looking to adopt a Chinese child. And they wanted to know, uh, they've been approached about adopting one with hydrocephalus. <laughs> and uh, our hydrocephalic boy, who's in this third year of college, didn't walk till he's 22 months old. When we sent him off to kindergarten, he couldn't make a circle. Couldn't make an O with chalk on the driveway. It's just, uh, it's, it's just great how the Lord works in people's lives and in their bodies too. So, anyhow, thank you. I think she's going to make me quit talking. Is that right? I won't make you quit. Okay. <laughs> thank you for coming.